Welcome back to the American History Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at basically progressive diplomacy. Uh, So the U.S. uh, and kind of as it's starting to take shape with the new world order that's emerging, what's happening, what's going on. So as the Panama Canal was being built, progressive diplomacy was taking shape. And like progressive politics, it stressed moralism and order as it stretched executive power to new limits in an attempt to try and mold or influence the international environment. And at the heart of it was a belief in the superiority of Anglo-American values and institutions and the need to spread them across the world. And every Western leader assumed that Northern Europeans were racially superior with the responsibility to uplift the lesser peoples of the tropical zones. And Theodore Roosevelt, he... uh, like to invoke the old African proverb, walk softly and carry a big stick. In the Caribbean, he moved uh, very loudly and mightily. Panama Canal gave the U.S. a big position in the Western Hemisphere. Its importance required the country to police the surrounding premises. Um, and before granting Cuba its independence in 1902, the United States reorganized its finances and wrote into the Cuban Constitution the Platt Amendment. It gave American authorities the right to intervene if Cuban independence or internal order were threatened. And claiming that power, the U.S. troops were going to be occupying the island twice between 1906 and 1923. In looking to enforce a favorable environment for trade in the Caribbean, Roosevelt worried about European intentions. The Monroe Doctrine of 1823 had declared against further European colonization in the Western Hemisphere. But in the early 20th century, the rising debts of Latin Americans to Europeans invited intrusion. And going well beyond Monroe's concept of resisting foreign penetration, Roosevelt asserted American command of the Caribbean more like an imperialist than a protector of Latin American independence. And in the Far East, Roosevelt was going to be exercising more ingenuity rather than force, uh, since he considered Asia beyond the American sphere of influence. Unlike President McKinley, T.R. committed himself only to maintaining an open door of equal access to trade in China and to protecting the Philippines, our heel of Achilles, our Achilles heel, basically. And the key was counterbalancing or offsetting Russian and Japanese ambitions in the region. So when Japan attacked Russian holdings in the Chinese province of Manchuria in 1904, Roosevelt offered to mediate, and both sides met at the U.S. Naval Base near Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and under Roosevelt's guidance produced the Treaty of Portsmouth in 1905. It recognized the Japanese victory, the first by an Asian power over a European country, and ceded territory on the Asian mainland to Japan. And Japan promised to leave Manchuria as part of China and keep trade open to all foreign nations. Both the balance of power in Asia and the open door in China were preserved, and the diplomacy of Roosevelt in all this earns him the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906. And instead of force or finesse, though, William Howard Taft was going to be relying on private investment to promote economic stability, keep the peace, and tie debt-ridden nations to the United States. So his dollar diplomacy simply amounted to substituting dollars for bullets, Taft explained. He and his Secretary of State, Philander Knox, treated the restless nations of Latin America like struggling businesses, injecting capital, 
and reorganizing management, and by the time Taft left office in 1913, half of all American investments abroad were in Latin America, often relying on Roosevelt's corollary to the Monroe Doctrine as a foundation. And Taft's efforts to strengthen China with investments in trade only intensified rivalry with Japan and made China more suspicious of all foreigners, including Americans. So, as president, Woodrow Wilson was going to revive and enlarge Jefferson's notion of the United States as a beacon of freedom. So... Such paternalism only thinly masked Wilson's assumption of Anglo-American superiority and his willingness to export Western-style democracy, capitalism, and morality, all in line with progressive values through force of need be. And Wilson's missionary diplomacy had a practical side. So in the 20th century, foreign markets would serve as America's new frontier. And Wilson's genius kind of uh, lay in reconciling the commercial self-interest with the global idealism. In his eyes, exporting American democracy and capitalism would promote stability and progress throughout the world. And in Mexico, a lingering crisis was going to turn Wilson's moral diplomacy into a mockery. So a common border, 400 years of shared history, and millions of dollars in investments made what happened in Mexico of urgent importance to the United States. In 1910, a revolution plunged Mexico into turmoil. Just as Wilson was entering the White House in 1913, the ruthless general, Victoriano Huerta, emerged as head of the government. Wealthy upper-class landowners and foreign investors endorsed Huerta, who was more likely to protect their holdings. Soon, a bloody civil war was raging. Unlike most European leaders, Wilson refused to recognize Huerta and his immoral government of butchers. Huerta had murdered the popular leader, Francisco Madero, so instead, Wilson backed the rebel leader, Venustianzo Carranza. When a bankrupt Huerta resigned in 1914, Carranza formed a new constitutionalist government but refused to follow Wilson's guidelines. So Wilson then threw support to Francisco Pancho Villa a peasant-born general who had broken from Carranza. And together with Emiliano Zapata, another peasant leader, Villa kept rebellion flickering. And so a year later, when Wilson finally recognized the Carranza regime, Villa turned against the United States in protest. And he would go to abduct 18 Americans from a train in Mexico in 1916 and slaughter them. He gallops into Columbus, New Mexico, kills 19 people, leaves the town in flames, and Wilson's going to order 6,000 troops into Mexico to capture Villa. It's going to be one of the longest manhunts in history. And do, 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 do. Uh, for nearly two years, General John Blackjack Pershing uh, was going to be chasing Villa on horseback and by automobile and airplane. And there were bloody skirmishes with government troops, but not a single one with Villa and his rebels. And in around 1917, around the time Wilson is recalling Pershing from Mexico, the British liner Laconia is making its way home across the Atlantic. And passengers below decks, they're talking almost casually of the war that had been raging in Europe since 1914. 
And Germany had stepped up their submarine attacks. The question was kind of unavoidable when you're on travel like that. And a torpedo was going to hit the vessel. And just as the warning whistles were blasting the passengers' abandoned ship and from lifeboats, they watched a second torpedo send the Laconia below the surface. And for a century, a lot of strains have been pushing Europe towards war. Its population tripled, its middle and working classes grow, discontent with industrial society grows, nationalism surged, and with all of its companions, militarism and imperialism. And led by Kaiser Wilhelm II, eager for empire, Germany is going to align itself with Turkey and Austria-Hungary. The established imperial powers of England and France wanted to contain Germany by supporting its enemy, Russia. And so by the summer of 1914, Europe is already like filled to the brim with weapons, troops, armor-plated navies. These war machines are all linked through diplomatic and military alliances, all of them committed to war the moment sets them in motion. And that moment's going to come June 28, 1914, in the streets of Sarajevo the capital of Bosnia in southwest Austria-Hungary. And Bosnia used to be part of Serbia. Now, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, they're going to be gunned down here in Sarajevo. And the young assassin belonged to the Black Hand. It's a terrorist group that have vowed to reunite Bosnia with Serbia and create another Slavic nation on Austria-Hungary's border. And... Austria-Hungary, France with Austria-Hungary, they're trying to now punish Serbia in response. Russia, Germany's main rival in Europe, is going to call up its six million man army to aid the Serbs. Germany joins with Austria-Hungary, France with Russia. July 28th, after a month of very insincere demands for apologies, Austria-Hungary is going to attack Serbia to punish the Serbs for the death of Archduke Ferdinand. Germany is going to declare war on Russia on August 1st and two late two days later on France. Mm. Now, the outbreak of war in Europe is going to shock a lot of Americans. Few knew Serbia is anything but just a tiny splotch on the map. Fewer still are prepared to go to war for its defense. President Wilson issued a declaration of neutrality and approved a plan for evacuating Americans stranded in Belgium. Wilson soon came to see the calamity as an opportunity. In his mind, a neutral America could take the moral high ground and lead warring nations to a peace without victory, without territorial concessions or monetary reparations, and a new world order. Selfish nationalism would give way to cooperative internationalism, power politics to collective security, in which nations join together to ensure the safety of all and to isolate aggressors. Progressive faith and reason would triumph over irrational violence, and so everything hinged on maintaining neutrality and if america could remain impartial in thought as well as action it can lead the way to a higher peace and extend wilson's moral diplomacy to a world at war and in a country as ethnically diverse as the united states true impartiality is impossible americans of german and austrian descent they naturally sympathized with the central powers as did irish americans on the grounds of the centuries-old domination of ireland by england the bonds of language, culture, and history are going to tie most Americans to Britain. And gratitude for French aid during the American Revolution still lives at this time. Germany aroused different sentiments. So, although some progressives admired German social reforms, Americans generally saw Germany as an iron military power just built on conquest. 
And Americans would read British propaganda as Spike Helmeted Huns, like, raping women and bayoneting their children. And some of the stories were true, some embellished, some are just false altogether, but they all worked to antagonize Americans against Germany. And long-withstanding American economic ties to Britain and France created a financial investment in Allied victory. So the American economy boomed with the flood of war orders. But a British blockade is going to reduce American war goods trade with the central powers down to a trickle. So that's when we see, like, true neutrality is impossible. So Wilson admired Great Britain all of his life. Uh, He couldn't really contain his British sympathies. He insisted all warring powers respect the right of neutrals to trade with any nation. He hesitated to retaliate against uh, Great Britain's blockade of Germany. Britain's very powerful navy was its key to victory over Germany, a land power. So by the end of 1915, the United States had all but accepted the British blockade while American supplies continue to flow to England and we see neutrality's gone. And early in 1915, Germany had turned to a new weapon to try and even the odds at sea and it mounted a counter blockade of Great Britain with two dozen submarines or Unterseeboot called U-boats. Before submarine sea raiders had usually given cruising passengers the chance to escape. But the U-boats surfaced to obey the conventions they risked being rammed or blown from the water. So submarines attacked without warning and spared no lives. Invoking international law and national honor, Wilson threatened to hold Germany to strict accountability for any American losses. The Germans promised not to sink any American ships, but soon there was a new issue. What about the safety of American passengers on vessels of nations at war? And... May 7th, 1915, we see the British passenger liner Lusitania comes out of a fog bank out of the coast of Ireland on its way from New York to Southampton in England. And the commander of the U-20 could hardly believe his eyes, and he fires a single torpedo from what he sees in a periscope. And then one of the main boilers of Lusitania explodes, and the ship lists so badly The lifeboats could barely be launched before the vessel sank, and nearly 1,200 men, women, and children perished, along with 128 Americans. And Wilson, though horrified, he did little more than send notes of protest to Germany. And battling on two fronts in Europe, Germany wanted to keep the United States out of the war. But in February 1916, desperate Germany was going to declare submarine warfare on all armed vessels belligerent or neutral. A month later, a U-boat commander mistook the French steamer Sussex for a mine later and mine layer and torpedoed the unarmed vessel and several Americans were injured. And in mid-April, Wilson issued an ultimatum. If Germany refused to stop sinking non-military vessels, the United States would break off diplomatic relations and war would surely follow. And so without having enough U-boats to control the seas, Germany agrees to Wilson's terms, all but abandoning its counter-blockade. And while hundreds of uh, young Americans are slipping across the border to enlist in the Canadian Army, most Americans agree that neutrality is the wisest course. Pacifists condemn the war, but Republicans and corporate leaders argue that keeping the nation at peace requires military strength. And 
By the end of 1915, frustration with German submarines led Wilson to join the cause. He toured the country promoting preparedness and promising a Navy second to none. In Washington, he was going to press Congress to double the Army, increase the National Guard, and begin construction of the largest Navy in the world. Preparedness had political power, too, as the Democrats discovered early in the presidential campaign of 1916. So, so basically, uh, Wilson, he ends up getting renominated by acclamation. He kept us out of the war. So he is endorsing military preparedness while campaigning on having kept the country out of the war. And twice since 1915, Wilson had sent his very trusted advisor, Edward House, to Europe to negotiate a peace among the warring powers, and twice he had failed. With the election over, Wilson opened his final peace offensive. So when he asked the belligerents to state their terms for a ceasefire, neither side responded. And so Wilson is going to be calling for a peace among equals in January 1917. So as Wilson spoke, a fleet of U-boats was cruising towards the British Isles. Weeks earlier, German military leaders had persuaded the Kaiser to take one last gamble to starve the Allies into submission. And on January 31st, 1917, the German ambassador in Washington was going to announce that unrestricted submarine warfare would resume the next day. And Wilson's dream of neutrality collapsed. He asked Congress for authority to arm merchant ships and severed relations with Germany. Then British authorities handed him a bombshell, an intercepted telegram from the German Foreign Secretary, Arthur Zimmerman, to the Kaiser's ambassador in Mexico. In case the United States went to war with Germany and Mexico joined the Central Powers, the ambassador was instructed to offer Mexico guns, money, and its lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Wilson angrily released the Zimmerman telegram to the press. Soon after, he ordered gun crews aboard merchant ships and then directed them to shoot U-boats on sight. These policies now combined with events abroad to propel a reluctant Wilson toward war. And while the United States had been debating entry into the Great War, the Allies were close to losing it. Following the initial German assault in 1914, the war had settled into a stalemate. So, a continuous immovable front stretched south from Flanders to the border of Switzerland. Troops dug trenches six to eight feet deep and four to five feet wide to escape bullets, grenades, and artillery. 25,000 miles of these trenches slashed a muddy scar across Europe. Men lived in them for years, prey to disease, lice, and a plague of rats. And war in the machine age gave the advantage to the defense. So, when soldiers would charge over the top of the trenches, they get torn apart by machine guns firing 600 rounds a minute. And poison gas would stop them in their tracks. Giant howitzers would lob shells on them from positions too distant to see. And in the Battle of the Somme River in 1916, a million men are killed in just four months of fighting. So only late in the war did new armored land ships, codenamed tanks, return the advantage to the offense by surmounting the trench barriers with their caterpillar treads. And by this time, Vladimir Lenin is speeding home to Russia. Food riots, coal shortages, and protests against the government had led to revolution. And Lenin had been exiled to Switzerland during the early stages of the Russian Revolution, but returned to lead his Bolshevik party to power in November of 1917. 
Soon the Russians would negotiate a separate peace with Germany, which then transferred a million German soldiers to the Western Front for the coming spring offensive. So, the Allies' plight drove the army into a crash program to send a million soldiers to Europe by the spring of 1918. The United States had barely 180,000 men in uniform to raise the force. Congress would pass the Selective Service Act in May 1917. Feelings against the draft ran high, but progressives were more inclined to see military service as an opportunity to unite America and promote democracy by breaking down differences among classes. Um, Mexican-Americans and African-Americans, they volunteered in disproportionately high numbers. While Mexican-Americans were integrated into regular army units, African-Americans remained segregated. And they very quickly filled the all-black army and eight National Guard units already in existence. And racial violence sometimes flared among the troops. The worst episode occurred in Houston in the summer of 1917, Harassed by white soldiers and by the city's Jim Crow laws, seasoned black regulars fought back and ended up killing 17 white civilians. Their whole battalion was arrested, disarmed, and sent to New Mexico. Thirteen troopers were condemned to death and hanged within days too quickly for appeals even to be filed. And progressive reformers, they don't miss the opportunity to put the social sciences to work in the army. So most recruits have fewer than seven years of education, yet they had to be classified and assigned very quickly to units. And psychologists saw the chance to use new intelligence tests to help the army improve their own theories about the value of IQ, intelligence quotient, and measuring brain power. In fact, these new scientific IQ tests often measured little more than class origins. So the Army stopped the testing program in January 1919, but schools across the country adopted it after the war, reinforcing many ethnic and racial prejudices. Armed, clothed, and drilled, the Doughboys sailed off aboard Atlantic ferries, the ships that conveyed them to Europe. Infantrymen were called Doughboys, most likely because of the clay dough used by soldiers in the 1850s to clean their brass belt buckles. And so to equip, feed, and transport an army of nearly 5 million requires a national effort. So new taxes are going to pay for about a third of the war costs. The rest are going to come financed uh, on loans through Liberty and Victory bonds and war savings certificates. And with sweeping grants of authority provided by Congress, President Wilson would construct a massive bureaucracy to mobilize the home front. And what emerged was a managed economy similar to the new nationalism envisioned by Theodore Roosevelt. And no industries were actually nationalized. Instead, we see a web of new executive agencies uh, regulated and supervised seeing the new private sector by rewarding businesses rather than, you know, punishing them. A War Industries Board was going to coordinate production through networks of industrial and trade associations as well. So we see the modern bureaucratic state receiving a big boost during the 18 months of American participation in the war. And speeding trends were already underway. Some 5,000 new federal agencies are going to centralize authority, managing the economy, and cooperate with business and labor. And the war... Benefited working men and women, though not as much as their employers who benefited most. 
Government contracts guaranteed high wages, an eight-hour day, and equal pay to men and women for comparable work. To encourage people to stay on the job, federal contracting agencies set up special classes to teach employers the new science of personnel management in order to supervise workers more efficiently and humanely. And women, the demand for workers are going to bring a million more women into the labor force as well. Most are young and single. Some take over jobs once held by men as railroad engineers, drill pest operators, electric lift truck drivers. And women in war, war work nonetheless help to energize several women's causes and organizations. Uh, radical suffragist Alice Paul and others who had protested against the war now argued for women's rights, including the right to vote on the basis of it. So as women worked beside men in wartime factories and offices, in nursing stations at home or on the front, and in patriotic and other volunteer organizations, they could argue more convincingly for both economic and political equality. And a step in that direction is gonna come after the war with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, granting women the right to vote. So the uh, first American Doughboys, they're going to land in France in June 1917. Very few see actual battle. General John Pershing's going to hold back his raw troops until they get more training. Uh, he also separates them in a distinct American expeditionary force to preserve their identity and avoid Allied disagreements over strategy. In the spring of 1918, as Germans are pushing towards Paris, Pershing Russia's 70,000 American troops to the front. American units are going to help block the Germans at the town of Chateau Thierry and at Bellia Wood. Two more German attacks, one at Amiens and another just east of the Marne River, and then German retreats as well. And in September 1918, half a million American soldiers and a smaller number of French troops overran the German stronghold at St. Mihiel in four days. And so with the army in retreat, civilian morale is low. Germany's leaders are going to seek an armistice. They hope to negotiate terms along the lines laid out by Woodrow Wilson in a speech to Congress in January 1918. Wilson's bright vision of the peace had encompassed 14 points. The key provisions called for open diplomacy, free seas and free trade, disarmament, and democratic self-rule. Most important was the 14th point, which called for an association of nations to guarantee collective security by committing together or committing member nations to join together in isolating and punishing aggressors. It was nothing less than a new world order to end selfish nationalism, imperialism, and war. And Wilson's ideals also stirred uh, German liberals who found the proposals uh, formed the basis for an honorable truce. On October 6th, Wilson received a telegram from Berlin requesting an immediate end to the fighting on the basis of the 14 points. Within a month, Turkey and Austria-Hungary surrendered. Early in November, the Kaiser was overthrown and fled to neutral Holland. On November 11th, 1918, German officers filed into Allied headquarters in a converted railroad car in France and signed the armistice. Of the 2 million Americans who served in France, some 116,500 actually died. By comparison, the war claimed 2.2 million Germans, 1.7 million Russians, 1.4 million French, 
1.2 million Austro-Hungarians, and nearly a million Britons. In the months before the armistice, the scourge more lethal than war had begun to engulf the globe. It had started innocently enough at Fort Riley, Kansas, early in March 1918, when a young company cook reported to the infirmary, infirmary on sick call. His head and muscles ached, his throat was sore, and he had a low-grade fever. It was influenza, dangerous for infants and the old, but ordinarily no problem for robust young men. By noon, however, 107 soldiers had reported similar symptoms. Within a week, the number had jumped to over 500. Cases of the flu were being reported in virtually every state, even on the isolated island of Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay, and robust young people were dying from it. The first wave of flu produced few deaths in the United States, but as the virus mutated over the next year, its victims experienced more distressing symptoms, vomiting, dizziness, labored breathing. More and more of them died, literally drowning in their own bodily fluids from the pneumonia that accompanied the virus. Soldiers and others in living in close quarters were especially vulnerable. For reasons still unknown, so were young adults 20 to 34 years old, precisely the ages of most of those in the armed forces. For every 50 people infected, one died. In the United States alone, the death toll rose to perhaps 600,000. More than the American battle deaths in World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and the war in Vietnam combined. And ironically, the United States was the country least affected by this worldwide epidemic called a pandemic. American soldiers seem to have carried the disease to Europe, where it jumped from one country to another in the spring and summer of 1918. French troops and civilians soon were suffering from it, then British and German. And with steamships and railroads carrying people all over the globe, virtually no place was safe. By the summer of 1918, the virus had leapt from North America and Europe to Asia and Japan, by fall to Africa and South America. As far north as the Russian city of Archangel, official were reporting 30 influenza deaths by October 1918. 16 months after it appeared, the flu vanished as quickly as it had appeared. So conservative estimates placed the number of dead worldwide at 50 million, making the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919 the most lethal outbreak of disease on an annual basis in human history. And global war had helped spread the disease, but improvements in transportation and two centuries of global migrations also spawned pandemics. As automobiles and airplanes continued to shrink the globe, similar pandemics, though less deadly, would be repeated in years to come. Now, everywhere Wilson went, cheers are going to greet him. In Paris, two million people shower him with flowers. In Italy, they hail him as the peacemaker from America. Wilson believed what he heard, unaware of how determined the victors were to punish the vanquished. David Lloyd George of England, George Clemenceau of France, Vittorio Orlando of Italy, and Wilson constituted the Big Four at the conference, and that included about 27 nations. War had united them, now peacemaking threatened to divide them. Wilson's sweeping reforms had attacked Allied leaders by surprise. Hungry for new colonies, eager to see Germany crushed and disarmed, they had already divided up the territories of the Central Powers in secret treaties. Germany offered to surrender on the basis of Wilson's 14 points. But the Allies refused to accept them. When Wilson threatened to renegotiate peace on his own, Allied leaders finally agreed to his terms, but only for the moment. Noticeably absent when the peace conference convened in January 1919 were the Russians. None of the Western democracies had recognized the Bolshevik regime in Moscow out of fear that the communist revolution might spread. Instead, France and Britain were helping to finance a civil war to overthrow the Bolsheviks. 
Even Wilson had sent several thousand American troops to join the Allied occupation of some northern Russian ports into Siberia. The Russians would neither forgive nor forget this intrusion. Grilling negotiations forced Wilson to yield several of his 14 points. Britain refused even to discuss issues of free trade and freedom of the seas. The only mention of disarmament involved Germany, which was barred from rearming. And Wilson did achieve some successes. His pleas for national self-determination led to the creation of a dozen new states in Europe, including Yugoslavia, Hungary, and Austria. Poland and newly created Czechoslovakia, however, contained millions of ethnic Germans. And former colonies gained a new status as mandates of the victors, now obligated to prepare them for independence. The old German and Turkish empires in the Middle East and Africa became the responsibility of France and England while Japan took over German possessions in the Far East. And Wilson, he hoped to avoid future wars and resolve disagreements through negotiation and arbitration. So, Article 10, what Wilson's going to call the heart of the covenant, bound the members to respect one another's independence and territory and to join together against attack. Wilson left immediately for home to address growing opposition in Congress. In the off-year elections of 1918, voters unhappy with wartime controls, new taxes, and attacks on civil liberties had given both the Senate and the House of Representatives to the opposition Republicans. So, although most of the country favored the treaty, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, the uh, Senate Majority Leader from Massachusetts, he opposed it. So, in part because he feared that the General Association of Nations, called the League of Nations, would hamstring American foreign policymakers. For decades, Lodge had fought to preserve American freedom of action in foreign affairs. Now he worried that the League would undermine that freedom by subjecting Americans to the will of other nations, surrendering even the war-making powers of Congress when the international body sees fit. And he certainly didn't want Democrats to win votes by taking credit for the treaty. And Wilson's only hope of winning the necessary two-thirds majority was in the compromise, but he stubbornly resisted any changes. Despite his failing health, Wilson instead took his case to the people in a month-long campaign across the nation in 1919. Pueblo, Colorado, a crowd of 10,000 heard him speak of American soldiers killed in France and American boys whom the League one day would spare from death. And listeners, you know, some were weeping upon hearing this. And that evening, utterly exhausted, Wilson collapsed in a spasm of pain. And October 6th, or October 2nd, sorry, four days after being rushed to the White House, he falls to the bathroom floor and knocked unconscious by a stroke. He recovers slowly, but never fully. And more and more, the battle for the treaty consumed his fading energies. Late in 1919, Lodge finally reported the treaty out of committee with 14 reservations, limiting American responsibilities and American asserting American rights under the treaty. The most important declared that the United States assumed no obligation to aid League members unless Congress consented. Wilson refused to compromise and asked Democrats in the Senate to vote against the treaty. Whatever ill will Lodge bore Wilson, his objections did not destroy this treaty, but only weakened it. 
When the amended treaty finally came before the Senate in March 1920, enough Democrats broke from the president to produce a majority in favor, but not the required two-thirds. So the Treaty of Versailles was dead in America. And so July 1921, Congress is going to finally enact a joint resolution ending the war. And so the United States, which had fought separately from the Allies, made a separate peace as well. So, peace abroad did not bring peace at home. On May Day 1919, six months after the war had ended, mobs in a dozen cities broke up. Socialist parades injured hundreds and killed three people. Later that month, when a spectator at a victory loan rally in Washington refused to stand for the national anthem, a sailor shot him in the back, and the stadium crowd applauded. The spontaneous violence and extremism erupted because Americans believed they were under attack by homegrown and foreign-sponsored radicals. When a rapid end to wartime controls brought skyrocketing prices and unemployment grows in the wake of millions of returning veterans, a wave of labor unrest sweeps the country. Even the Boston police go on strike for higher pay. In Seattle, a general strike paralyzed the city for five days in January 1919. So this whole episode of all the violence and everything this is the red scare we call it and world war one like just kind of wrapping up here it is rightly named the great war by europeans because it does transform the continent and leave a bitter legacy that shapes the 20th century in europe france and great britain triumph only to find their economies uh feeble their people are dispirited and uh, dispirited and fearful with their empires near collapse. So two other empires of vanquished Austria-Hungary and Tur- Turkey, their dismembered revolution toppled the once mighty czars of Russia, bringing an end to the Russian Empire and the beginning of the Soviet Union that eventually fell under the dictatorship of Joseph Stalin. Germany suffered defeat, humiliation, and a crushing burden of debt, which together paved the way for Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And elsewhere, victorious Japan left the Paris peace table shamed by what it regarded as paltry spoils of war and determined to rise to global greatness. Japan's flickering democracy soon crumbled as the cult of militarism and emperor worship took hold. In the Middle East and Africa on the Indian subcontinent, unfulfilled promises of a world made safe for democracy sparks a growing number of nationalist and anti-colonial movements. So... Lots going on here.